on, on a topic that we care very dearly about here. So thank you for taking the time to come from Washington and from uh, the side of Brussels on improving regulatory policy formulation and institutional resilience in Europe. We have a number of people in our panel who will be joining us as their turn comes on. And let me just welcome you first. I have Arup Banerjee, who's come EU Director from the World Bank. Welcome back, Arup. It's always a pleasure to have you. Rohir van der Brink, who is the representative here in Brussels, if I understand correctly. The lead, lead economist here in the representation of the World Bank. And then we will have, um, we have two presentations, I believe, from you and from uh, Rina Badiani, who is Rina, Rina is there. Um, and then we will uh, have a small discussion, which will be led by Scott Marcos, who is a fellow here, a senior fellow here at Bruegel. And from the OECD, Celine Kaufman, uh, who will always uh, also join the discussion at, uh, after the presentations. So perhaps without uh, further ado, I, I, I'm, Arnoub, I'll give you the, the floor to introduce the report that you just produced. Thank you. Um, I, it's on, I think, yeah. I don't know if it's on, but everyone can hear me. I don't know if it's been live streamed, but you can hear me. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting Absolutely. us. <laughs> thanks for the report. Uh, the, the opportunity to present the report. I'm going to talk about really the two words um, that are the title of the report and actually including and institutions. Um, I was asked uh, a little while ago by uh, colleagues here, so uh, the World Bank is in Europe? Uh, what, uh, what do you do in Europe? <laughs> it's, a, it's a valid question, right? Um, and what I wanted to explain is really what we're doing in Europe and how this piece of research uh, fits into that broader mandate. The World Bank, as you know, our primary focus and our mission, if you'd like, it's uh, something we call the twin goals, which is about uh, eliminating extreme poverty, but also, and much more relevant to Europe, to what the jargon is promoting shared prosperity, but what that means is looking at the welfare of the bottom of the distribution. And what we found when we came here in Europe and started working on European issues um, some years ago was that, of course, and all of you know that, most, or if not all of you are Europeans, um, know that this is a subject that is alive and well in this continent. Um, inequality um, is something that is flourishing, um, in Europe, and much of our work that the previous reports shown there work have pointed out is delving much deeper into the dimensions of inequality and its causes uh, within the European Union. A long time ago, the first ever report that the World Bank um, did on the European Union was a report that some of you are familiar with. It was called Golden Growth. And Golden Growth was seen as a, a bit of a love letter to Europe, and it called Europe the convergence machine. The convergence machine is a, is a phrase that has caught on, and as uh, people forget its origin, it was from that report. And the idea was really that the European Union has been the greatest in modern history in terms of improving the lives of the worst of countries within it better than East Asia, and that was the time of the East Asia miracle was the major source. But then we followed it up with a report called Growing United, which is part of the same series, and looked at the fact that if the convergence machine is so good, why the angst? Why 
the political turmoil, why the economic challenges that the European Union is facing today. And essentially, the, the one-line tag from the Growing United was, um, Europe is growing, but not growing united. And that is a theme that essentially permeates all of the reports, including this one, is that what we see is that different aspects of the European project are moving at different speeds. This is not about the old multi-speed Europe debate. It is really about the fact that if you look, delve down, and you'll see some data that uh, Rina will present that are new data from this report, what you will see is that regions within countries are polarizing themselves. So the example I always give is that for those of you who've been to Bucharest, Bucharest is converging to Ile-de-France in Paris in terms of per capita income. And you see that when you go to Bucharest. You go to northeast Romania, and it's, you see scenes from my home country, India. Right? And this is what is happening across Europe, where you actually have a huge polarization of regions, but also of opportunities and people. And that we talk about in Growing United, we also talk about the, in the report on rethinking language regions, and in Rohir's uh, last report, thinking CAP, which was the pun on the common agricultural policy, uh, we talked about how different countries in Europe have agricultural, um, agriculture moving at very different speeds in the terms of, in countries like the Netherlands, you see that actually agriculture is inversely related to poverty. So that if you're in agriculture, you're actually better off. In Southern Europe, it's exactly the other way around. If you're in agriculture, you're the poor, right? So what is the story of all of this? Part of what, again, every one of these reports talk about, and I'll end with that, is that it is about institutional framework. It is about the fact that across Europe, this idea of a uniform institutional parameter that all countries, all regions, and all people enjoy is obviously not true. One of the, our previous reports also talked about the incompleteness of the services union, right? And how actually that has impeded the growth and welfare of the poorer parts of Europe and the poorer parts of Europe's population. So a big focus in every one of these reports, including this one, is about how to improve inclusion, how to promote inclusive growth. And as you'll see from this report, what we say is that every aspect of the growth puzzle needs to be looked at. We need strong growth, and that is what, of course, everyone focuses on. Is Europe growing? What's the headline number? It's 1.6? Oh, no, it's 1.5% a year. But that masks a huge amount of diversity under those numbers. So strong growth also has to be shared growth, and that's what we talked about in Growing United, that it has to be shared across the population, rich and poor, and it has to be shared across regions, rich and poor, even within countries. What this report picks up on is the third aspect of growth. Growth has to be resilient, not just strong, 
not just shared, but also resilient, because shocks will happen. Shocks will perturb the situation. How quickly can countries and people and households and families rebound back from that? And what are the institutions needed for that? So that is the focus of this report. And I very much would look forward to your comments, thoughts, and encouragement, or brickbats, as the case may be, as we delve deeper into the conversation. Thanks for giving us the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for providing the context for this, and it's, it's, always, it's always a delight to actually see somebody from the outside looking in uh, to remind us of some of, of some of these issues. So we are going to hear more about this report. We have Rohir and Irina, who will take 20 minutes to give us the main gist of this report. The floor is yours, Irina.
Okay. Ah, there we are. <laughs> Not just for median households, but also for low-income households. We use a concept of low income by EU standards, which is the same across Europe, to see where the profile or what, what the spatial profile of that population is and how it's evolved over time. And what's clear is in the period until 2009, the share of the population that, was, uh, that had low income by EU standards uh, dropped considerably. And particularly that was driven in these new member states that had historically higher poverty rates. However, what we see is that within these countries that the extent of divergence has been seen as being quite different. And that what you're seeing is that regions within European countries are pulling away from each other further and further away. So if we take again the example from Romania of Bucharest, you say that Bucharest has gone from a per capita GDP um, in PPS terms of just 60% of, of the EU average in 2000 to 30% above the EU average in uh, the most recent data. Whereas um, when you look at Vasliu, which and Giorgio and uh, Harjita, you see that their incomes, whilst rising, you see a very clear catch-up process. They have not risen quite as much, and that this growth has been driven uh, by cities and capital cities and in high-income regions and in, in secondary uh, cities. So the, the, what, what one's seen is this divergence that's been occurring at the same time as the convergence at the country level. But what you see quite clearly is the stalling of the convergence process. And it happened in the crisis and it happened, and in the way that it happened, it um, highlighted cracks that it, and underlying instabilities that had previously been hidden. And this is linked, actually, when you think about it, it's linked to the way that the crises unfolded, and it, which varied considerably across countries, and this is fed back into this convergence process. So the deepest impacts have been seen in countries in southern Europe and in the Baltic states. And what you also see is that uh, convergence actually in catch-up in central Europe uh, restarted quite quickly. But there was the divergence in southern Europe that meant that these convergence processes at the EU level continued to be stalled until 2016. And importantly, what we've seen on the household side is that labour markets and household incomes have taken longer to recover. And this has a fundamental impact on low-income households. You see that the share of households with that low income by EU standards increased during the crisis by nearly 20%. And only in 2017 are we expecting to see, are we, are we seeing that come back to the 2008 levels. Okay. So, you weren't expecting to see that there, were you? <laughs> What can we learn from household resilience by looking at how different income groups have fared during the crisis? Well, we see that growth, that the big message here is that growth has not been shared, has been shared with poor households in times of growth. So they've seen their incomes expand during these periods, but these households have not, on average, been shielded during times of crisis. And the way that we did this is we, we, we looked at how poor households have responded to growth um, in, in incomes, and we compared this to middle-class middle, middle households and richer households. And in an innovation from the literature, what we also did is we separated this growth elasticity um, into periods of expansion and in periods of contraction to see how this varied. And what you can see on this horizontal axis is the deciles, and on the vertical axis you see the elasticity of income growth. And with our whale, what we realized was, what we realized was that actually this figure that we see looks very much like the underbelly of a whale. And we saw that the curve was, uh, was raised at the tail and basically dipped under the surface of the water, if you want, 
um, at the, for the middle income uh, populations. So what we see is that the poorest households who are at the tail of the distribution, they see large swings up and down with economic growth and contraction, and more so than the average household. They see an amplification of growth patterns compared to middle class households. And so what that means is that these households are extremely have, we have seen responsiveness to growth um, during the periods of expansion, which is again linked to the substantial decline in, 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 in the fraction of households uh, with low income by EU standards that we saw uh, pre pre prior to 2009. But this similar responsiveness is mirrored during contractions, and these already vulnerable households are hit uh, more extensively, again, in, in these relative terms. So, for example, if we, we follow through again with Romania, what you saw is the bottom 20% of households saw their incomes fall by 25% between 2010 and 2013, 2014, whilst middle, median households saw me, median incomes fell by 10% over that same period, and they also recovered faster. And then when you compare, when you look at how middle-income households are doing, so this is the middle class, what we see is that they have not been responding quite as much either during the periods of contraction or during the periods of growth. So when, when, you, see, when you look at the middle class, you realise that they've been more resilient to the crisis than worse-off households. But during the periods of, contract, of, of expansion, you also see that they've had relative stagnation in terms of their income growth. And what's also noteworthy is that these patterns vary somewhat across our regions and our countries in Europe. So in southern, central and northern Europe, um, we see that bottom 20 households have had a greater um, decline in incomes than median households. Whilst in Western Europe, you see that on average, that the incomes have been more protected, they've been shielded during the crisis. And then when you zoom in at the country level, you see that actually there's quite a lot of dispersion even within our regional groupings. So when you look at the extent to which growth was shared during expansions and shielded and contractions at the country level, we can see that growth was shared for the most part, but actually the shielding varied a lot across the countries. And we link this to institutions. So in this figure, you see two lines. They're both purple, which is not helpful. We, made, we could have made those different colors. Um, the countries north of the horizontal line have growth passed through rates to poorer households that are above one. They're shared, they've managed to share growth more than proportionately. And those that are close to the line have effectively, the, the poorer households have seen growth that are similar to the average. Um, and what you also see is this vertical line, countries right of the line have managed to shield their households more during contractions than those left of the line. And what you see is that most countries cluster either at the line or above the line of the horizontal line, which means that we see that the majority of countries have managed to share growth with worst off households. But what you also see is the much greater dispersion um, when you look horizontally. So it's quite clear that you have more dispersion in the extent of shielding than you have in the extent of sharing. And what, what, if you look at the top left-hand corner, you see four countries that have, have, have this exact story of amplification. Bulgaria, Romania, Italy, and Portugal. The way that they, the, the household incomes have responded have been amplified during the uh, contractions and the expansions. And, but the way that it's played out in terms of the pockets of the households is quite different. 
So if you look at Italy, where you see a long duration of the, of the crisis, what you've seen is the bottom 20 incomes have really not shifted between 2006 and 2016. Whereas when you look at Bulgaria and Romania, which had strong depths of crisis, but relatively quick, quick recovery periods, what you see is that the uh, incomes of the bottom 20 have somehow still managed to grow despite that uh, strong volatility. What we then did was to, to link this to social protection systems. And what we, what we found is that essentially being a high spender is not enough. That having a high percentage of GDP and of revenues devoted to social protection um, relative to other countries was not sufficient to explain this pass-through rate. What we see is that it's about the extent to which uh, the spending is targeted towards low-income households and the coverage of those low-income households. And what's also quite clear is that what you need are social protection programs that are responsive and adaptive. They need to be able to quickly absorb households that are at risk of falling into poverty when these shocks hit. And they have to, your systems have to accommodate for that. And what they also need to have is adequate funding and sufficient coverage. Otherwise, you see that households fall through the gaps. So this is just one institution. I'm going to leave Rochier to do justice to the remaining part. Yes, applause is in order. So, um, the mic is working, no? Okay. So, as Orup told you, we're going to focus on inclusive growth, and we're going to focus on resilience. Now, resilience we, we have defined as how capable are you to absorb a shock and then rebound from it. So you get knocked down, okay, but how quickly do you get up? So resilience, we will measure as, as something that happens with respect to the absorption, how, how bad it is, and then how quickly you can recover from it. And then we needed to operationalize this idea of inclusive growth. So we said, okay, we are gonna look at economic growth, the traditional measure that you read about, Everywhere, but we also have to now add how does unemployment react to the shock? And we use the measure called half-life. So how long does it take for unemployment in this case to rebound to half its level that was there before the crisis? And we said how volatile is this? Because of course if you get up but you're continuously bouncing around, that's not very you know, steady re re uh, re uh, rebound. And then we looked at the bottom 20% of the households. And uh, we calculated, okay, what's the depth of the income shock to them and what's the duration of the income shock to them? We hustled this together and out came an index, which we then called the resilience of uh, uh, inclusive growth. Now this matters a lot. So when I said the traditional measure is output and the one we added was unemployment, for instance, if you look for instance of the half-life of output shocks in our panel, that varies from one to six quarters, one to six quarters. But unemployment from one and a half quarters to five years. So it, it really matters a lot whether you include those variables or not. We had our measure of resilience and then we thought, well, what, how do we explain this now? And uh, Gunther Beck, who's sitting there, he. He did, I don't know, thousands of regressions. We went on a giant data mining exercise. 
and we said what institutions, what policies should theoretically matter, yeah? which of them are statistically significant, who, who move in tandem with the resilience measure, uh, and which ones are also economically significant. Because as you well know, sometimes you can have a high T value, you can have a high statistical significance, but if you calculate, okay, what does this mean in the real world, 1% increase in this, does it produce only 0.00001% increase in the outcome? That's not economically significant. So we screened these host of variables for that and we selected them. We then um, produced heat maps because again, instead of producing gazillions of tables and regression results, we said let's put this together in a heat map. Um, I'll show you the example of it. So this is the, the heat map that, that, that looks at all the countries and all the policies. Um, but these heat maps then compared the EU members along resilience, they were ranked, and along uh, the institutional variables that we uh, selected. And to give away the, the, the punchline, so resilience institutions were strongest in Western Europe, and weakest in Southern Europe, with Central and Eastern European countries in an intermediate position. Now, if you look at the graph, so you have the top row is the ultimate, the aggregate resilience measure, and then we split it up into Western Europe, Northern Europe, uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and Southern Europe. And just take a step back and say, yes, the world is greener to the left, no? And the world is more orangey and red to the right. Um, you see a whole list of variables there that if you want to read the report, you can go into the details of each of these institutions. But those were the ones that we screened. Yeah? So we tested a whole bunch of things like public debt, non-performing loans, the rule of law. But these came out as the ones that, that, we could, that would meet our screening criteria. Um, and you see the, the economic uh, resilience, uh, the first 1.1 to 1.5, uh, the household income, you see an optimal currency indicator, the business cycle synchronicity, and then the other measures, inequality, low income protection, labor market indicators, and private sector uh, conditions. Now, before we um, go into some of the things, some of the institutions that we thought matter, we have to understand something about the Eurozone here. So the Eurozone has one monetary and exchange rate policy for the entire zone. Yeah? In, a, in a federal state like, uh, like the US, yeah, you will have mechanisms in which at the regional level you can help states that are falling behind. In Europe, this is a work in progress. Yeah? You can see there the, the, the fiscal union, that's actually you know, not at all what the, the, the designers of the Eurozone had thought about. Could never be a fiscal transfer union. Yeah? There is a banking union uh, in, in an optimal currency area. That is a work in progress. Yeah? Uh, when the crisis broke out, Europe realized that the, the regulation and supervision of systemic banks in the various countries was not very well done. There has been a great reform done there. There's now centralized supervision of the systematically important banks. There's a single labor market, yes, but we know in practice 
it doesn't always work. Only 4% of Europeans can consider, be considered mobile, really. If you look at the, uh, if you look at, uh, uh, the results of one of our previous reports that Europe already mentioned, uh, the liberalization of service sector is, is quite behind. The guilds are alive and, and, and thriving. So a Belgian accountant cannot work in Portugal. An Italian architect cannot work in Germany. So to this freedom of movement of labor, there's a lot of barriers there so that you can't really count on people moving around you know, from adversely affected areas to the more prosperous areas. And the single capital market, you know, there's also some, some challenges that still need to be made. So then, if at the regional level, there is just one exchange rate policy, one interest rate, then it means that national institutions have to absorb most of the shock. And in this picture, that's, that's what you see. They have to absorb it first, yeah? So labor markets, product markets, financial sector markets. And then they have to rebound from it, yeah? And it's the institutions that determine how, how that happens and how well that happens. So I, or, I already said this architecture at the regional level is incomplete. And therefore, what the economists call the real exchange rate has to absorb these shocks. Now, what is the real exchange rate? We have to spend a little bit of time on that. Think of it like this. How long do you have to work to buy an iPhone? Yeah? Or what is a foreigner willing to pay for the house in Belgium, for a house in, in Belgium? Those relative prices are set in thousands of markets, and out comes a real exchange rate value. I worked in Zimbabwe when the inflationary spiral started in 98, and of course we had to explain ourselves and everybody else why the central bank was unable to control the nominal exchange rate, because they kept on announcing that the Zimbabwe dollar was, you know, 10 to the US dollar or 15 to the US dollar. But in all these markets around the country, people said, no, 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 no. <laughs> the Zimbabwe dollar is not worth 10 to the US dollar. It's worth 20 to the US dollar. <laughs> because everybody was starting to, so how long do I have to work to buy a bag of mealy meal or, you know, so like I said, this was very obvious that the central bank governor and the minister of finance were completely unable to control the real exchange rate. Yeah? The example we used was, uh, was often like this. Imagine the printing press of the central bank is working, but now it makes a mistake, and it suddenly adds a zero to all the bills. No? What has happened to the nominal exchange rate? Devaluation by a factor 10. What has happened to the real exchange rate? Nothing. Yeah? So this is why we see, and we say also in the report, short-term fluctuations of the nominal exchange rate can help you absorb the shock in the short run, but in the long run, it really doesn't matter. The, the real exchange rate will adjust. And how it adjusts depends on how these markets are organized, whether there's competition, what the flexibility of the prices is, etc. So this is what we found. Um, first of all, from the selected institutions, first of all, targeted social protection and sufficient coverage of those social protection programs is associated with stronger resilience. Institutions that allow wages, an important determinant of the real exchange rate to adjust, they improve resilience. But high levels of employment resilience reduce resilience, so the protection of jobs statistically on average reduces resilience unless wage flexibility is very high. So let's get back to the 
heat map, look at the column for Germany, DE. You see that on EPL, the, the Employment Protection Legislation, and on the hiring and firing cost, you see orange and red. But you see on wage flexibility, a green. So in combination, what this means, these, these labor markets in Germany are actually quite resilient. And you might remember the stories when the crisis hit, Volkswagen and uh, the workers of Volkswagen were willing in negotiation with management to take a 20% nominal wage cut. Yeah? So yes, in return for not being fired. But something, so this, this idea, you, can, you cannot look at one of these policies in isolation. You have to see them in context. Yeah? Similarly, by the way, we talked about the, the nominal exchange rate. Poland has a flexible exchange rate. Yeah? Uh, but you see it there, relatively resilient. Yeah? It's quite green in the first row. But if you look at their policy and institutional mix, it's quite reddish and orangey. So what we say in the report, it looks like in the short run you can compensate yeah, for weak institutions, but of course in the long run this, this doesn't matter. Yeah? Uh, and countries who have continuously tried to competitively devalue their currency, like Italy in the 90s, they, they know it doesn't work. You have to improve your institutions to generate long-term growth. We also found, unsurprisingly, that private sector conditions matter, the level of competition. Yeah? That makes markets adjust, prices adjust. You remember the discussions on Greece, where you know the labor markets uh, yeah, it had to become more flexible, but people also insisted that the monopolies in the product markets needed to be opened up because you couldn't foist all the, the, the hurt of the crisis on labor. And then another, maybe for some economists surprising results, collective bargaining boosted resilience, but only if trust was present. So if there was trust between the stakeholders, like the example I gave you about the German firms, if people could look at a problem together, analyze the macroeconomic challenges that it posed, and together work on a solution and negotiate, that type of collective bargaining in which stakeholders trust each other works very well. I remember this uh, from my own country, uh, the Netherlands. In the 1980s, we had, 70s, we had the Dutch disease. Yeah? We were part of a wage inflationary spiral in which everybody was just, you know, uh, compensating rising inflation with rising wages. When then the labor unions sat down with the employers and supported by the government and said, what is happening to us? Why is our strengthening currency the real exchange rate, by the way? Because our currency was linked to the German mark. Yeah, it was fixed. But when local prices started rising faster than international prices, our real exchange rate rose. Many uh, industries in Holland became uncompetitive. We had to close down our shipbuilding industry. And you know, for Holland, that was quite a big thing because of the exports of natural gas. The, the solution was stakeholders have to sit together, understand the macroeconomics of what's at hand, and then agree on a solution. In this case, the solution was we labor unions, in exchange for you not firing everybody and closing down our industries, we will make sure that our wages remain competitive with German wages. Yeah? So we'll make sure that our wage increases will stay our main competitors' wages. 
if you've ever seen a soccer match between Holland and Germany, you know that that is a big thing to do. So that trust is, is, is a variable that really determines how something like collective bargaining we found was statistically and economically highly significant, maybe against what people had thought. We also found that trust in institutions, um, the trust in institutions and resilience reinforce each, each other. This, this level of cooperation between stakeholders at national and regional level is built on this trust, but these trust levels change over time. Because when we first found that trust in institutions mattered, we had a lot of people saying, listen, but trust, these are historical issues, you can't change them. When we looked at the data, trust levels actually changed quite significantly within Europe. And we found that in the more resilient economies, trust levels rose, whereas in the less resilient uh, economies, they de decreased. So this is in the report, we make a point out of that, that this interaction is important and you do need to work on that. So the conclusion, boosting resilience is about strengthening the real exchange rate institutions that help cushion, cushion shocks and support economic rebounds. Resilience itself doesn't produce long-term ec economic growth. If you get your flu shot, you'll get better, but you won't grow. So there's another set of policies you need to stimulate growth. But not getting the flu <laughs> will give you the space to work on growing. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, even to foster long-term growth, it's good that more res a more resilient economy gives you the space to work on, on those. And then we found that trust in institutions make actual reforms more effective and they reinforce resilience in a virtuous cycle. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, then we can move straight to, thank you, please join us. Uh, yeah. We can move straight to the discussion. Scott, can we start with you? Okay, thank you. Um, I'll need that. Thank you. Good. Well, uh, as far as Arup worrying about brickbats, uh, you won't hear any brickbats coming from this direction, uh, as, as you'll see in, uh, in the remarks that follow, which I think are about to go up on the screen. Um, uh, my Bruegel colleagues and I are really very much on the same page. I think that this is a very thoughtful, very comprehensive report. I think it's a very fine piece of work, uh, and uh, we, we very much welcome it. Now, it'll be, oh well, that'll be up there sometime. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that the, some of the key messages here clearly have to do with, uh, with issues in the European economic system, particularly as it relates to the, to the lower two deciles of the income distribution. <clears throat> and more generally, a perception that, uh, that institutional strength is important to the overall robustness of the system, which in turn is crucial for public confidence, for public support. Um, so the, this linkage between the two uh, is crucial. Oh, it is there, it's not here. Okay. Okay, so uh, you get to see my back a lot then. If you could get it up on the screen, I'd appreciate it. And also, if it moves, I would appreciate it. Hello, hello. So I was about to say- I'll You have another report coming up in technology. Uh, oh, okay. This, 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 good. This is good. Uh, blessing and curse. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, all right. Well, let me uh, let me just make some general comments, then perhaps without the slides. Um, there were actually three areas that I was looking to focus on. Um, one had to do with this uh, with this general um, 
general sense of, uh, of strengthening institutions. Hey, all right. Good. Okay. So it seems to me there are, again, uh, three aspects I wanted to touch on. Uh, one of them has to do with the crisis response of European member states. Uh, a second, to the degree to which the European member states are distinct on these key indicators, as shown in the report. Uh, and a third, about mechanisms to strengthen institutional mechanisms. And uh, this is something that I'm quite sure that uh, Celine Kaufman uh, from OECD will want to expand on in her remarks. She's a, she's a very fine specialist in these areas. So basically, the concern about crisis response, about the ability of the system to respond to crises, is very visible in, in the work from my colleagues. I particularly point you to uh, the memo written to the presidents of the European institutions that uh, we produced. Uh, we, we produced an entire series uh, in September. Uh, Maria happens to be the, a major author of the one I'm about to, to reference. But basically what it says is, indeed, uh, we have a risk of new crises, perhaps a new recession, perhaps other problems, uh, and that uh, the European institutions at European level are very constrained in what can be done. Uh, there's no euro area budget that you can use for counter-cyclical stimulus. Um, as far as taking interest rates down, it's pretty hard to take them down from where they already are. Um, and also, there's a lack of political willingness to invest more in national bonds. So there's limited ability to respond to the crises that could easily happen. So our advice also was complete the euro area's governance setup, you know, very much uh, along the same lines as what we're hearing from World Bank here, uh, and, and in this case, very nicely substantiated in, uh, in numbers and figures from World Bank. So, uh, so again, I think we're very much on the, on the same page. Also, by the way, you know, from the same report, the next sentence is, uh, if this isn't done, we run substantial risks of social consequences, negative social consequences. So again, we're on the same page. It's the right issues to look at. Now, as far as differences among the member states, uh, we've done various kinds of analyses over the years and come up with very similar kinds of findings. Uh, a very widely cited paper by my, uh, my colleague Andre Sapir in 2006 <coughs> classified different European member states by dimensions that he referred to as efficiency and equity. For efficiency, he used uh, participation in the labor market. For uh, equity, uh, what, uh, what we've used in our, our subsequent analysis, where we updated his work, um, was um, one minus the at-risk of poverty indicator. Um, and um, excuse me, uh, I'm on the wrong slide here. Uh, there you go. So at-risk at of poverty, which actually relates to how family income compares uh, after social transfers to median income. Basically, at risk of poverty is people that are more than that are below the 60% of median income line after transfers. So the question is uh, really about increasing polarization among household income, and uh, categorizing the countries on these two scales. What Andrei Sapir found, uh, he broke Europe up into four quadrants. Uh, I don't know if you can actually read the countries, but um, essentially you've got. High efficiency, high equity, which is one minus the poverty rate. And so the countries that were most successful on both scales were especially the Scandinavian countries plus Finland plus the Netherlands. I'm, I'm sorry, plus um, um, Austria plus the Netherlands. So you've got a Nordic group of well-performing countries. And you've also got a Mediterranean group that includes places like Italy and Greece. Now, we didn't show Eastern Europe here because uh, he was doing this in 2006. Uh, the data really would have, uh, essentially the 10 new member states just entered in 2004, so it would have been too soon. 
But uh, going back to look at the same data, uh, what we find is, again, you know, very much in line with the kinds of results that you're seeing in the World Bank work. Um, and, and this actually was analysis we just did a few months ago using the latest available data, which was 2017. You see that the countries that were doing well are still doing well, but um, in general, they've moved to the right on the efficiency, on the labor participation uh, measure. In the case of some, like Germany, hugely to the right, you know, usually 10%, a, a big change in labor participation, but at the cost of some decline in equity. And if you look instead at the Mediterranean countries, Spain, Italy, and Greece, uh, the, the countries that are relatively weak on these measures get weaker. Now, we, also, we looked at these numbers in the intervening years. Not surprisingly, there was a notable dip in the uh, crisis years and then some recovery. But again, it's, it's uh, broadly very much in line. So you know, we don't see anything in the World Bank uh, report that surprises us. I guess I'd put it that way. Um, I, th I think it's focusing on the right issues. Now, the World Bank report talks some about what's needed. It doesn't talk too much about concrete mechanisms for improving institutional design. But that's clearly implicit in what's written there. And um, so uh, w one thing I, I, I would, uh, would focus on is precisely how that can be turned into the policy formulation process. Um, what the World Bank report says rightly is more resilience boosts trust in institutions while less resilience destroys it. And so clearly, improving the institutions also improves resilience and vice versa. That's, that's I think, the, the big takeaway from the report. And I'd very much uh, take that point on board. Uh, so protecting credibility of the policy formulation process is important. You have to maintain public confidence. And there are mechanisms that can be used to do that and that have been used to do that. Uh, the general public does not understand them at all. They tend to be more of a Brussels policy bubble kind of thing. So people like, uh, uh, like those of us in the room, people like me get into this, certainly people like Celine. Um, but um, you know, here, how to deal with Euroscepticism, how to deal with divergent approaches among the countries, Clearly, better policy formulation has to be part of that, improving transparency, improving objectivity, improving independence of the process. Now, um, there is a process in place, and actually some of the people in the room are very well aware of it. Uh, uh, the better regulation process includes uh, ex-ante impact assessment, very much kind of a cost-benefit assessment kind of approach to doing this kind of work. Done properly, it can be very positive. Uh, but it has to be done well, and it also has to be communicated well, because the people, the, the public need to understand that there's genuine benefits in the things that are coming out of the European Union. Uh, the notion is you first evaluate what went wrong, then you look at what's going right and what needs to be fixed. And um, so you have a process. It's been progressively improved over the years. The OECD has tended to rate the European process very highly, but that doesn't mean that there's no work to be done. And uh, we've identified through our own work a number of issues. Um, uh, first off, there's some tendency to bypass these uh, impact assessment, this ex-ante assessment on the politically delicate or hot issues. Um, that happens probably less than it did in prior years, but it certainly happens. Um, you also find occasionally, uh, and sometimes not so occasionally, you know, some of the impact assessments are done with less objectivity that one might hope for. Some of them, you read it, and it's quite obvious that the people doing the analysis knew what outcome they wanted at a political level and then made the analysis fit, rather than doing it the other way around, which is the right way to do it. Um, so again, there's rooms for improvement. Uh, I was doing work for the European Parliament looking at the economic benefits of all of the different measures in the digital single market, which is close to 40 different legislative measures that were enacted in the last five years. 
Uh, I don't think I found a single one where there was a competent analysis both of benefits and of costs. If you were lucky, there'd be either one or the other. So um, clearly there's, there's room to do more. And a, another point would be in terms of objective independent review of the work which in first place, in the first line comes out of the commission, uh, you really need to have independent review done. And while, um, while I have great respect for the bodies that do this, both uh, on behalf of the commission and also within the parliament, um, I would claim that there's actually no body that covers absolutely everything that ought to be covered and that's adequately resourced and has total independence. So there's, um, there's, room, for, uh, th there's room to do better on this count as well. Uh, I guess a, a, a last point would be one of the great champions of this approach uh, and, and also a country that scores well on regulatory process in general is the UK. Um, as they depart the process, if they depart the process, uh, it uh, removes one champion from the room and uh, that may have consequences as well. And with that, I'm happy to hand over to Celine Kaufman. So I'm looking very much forward to the discussion. Lots of different uh, pieces of information. But before we do that, why don't we listen from the last speaker? <laughs> Too many things in my hands. It's not going to end well. Well, thank you. I have slides, okay, uh, but not for the overall presentation, so I can start. Um, well, thank you very much for the invitation, and thank you for the very interesting uh, report and, and slides, actually. Um, you won't, for those of you who know me, you won't be surprised that I'll focus and pick up on uh, Scott's um, final, sli final slides to focus on a specific set of institutions, uh, those related to the quality of laws and, and regulations, because when you think about it, laws and regulations are really key instruments of policy making, with spanning, budget, by which uh, governments can actually influence economic um, performance, but also uh, social redistribution. And I know you've covered a lot more institutions looking at your slides, um, but I, I thought I would focus on those and, and throw out a couple of, of comments. I come from the OECD Regulatory Policy Division, so that explains as well uh, the focus of the presentation. So maybe the first point I wanted to make based on the work we've been doing, so I see my slides here but not here, just to tell you <laughs> where we stand. Um, the first uh, thing I wanted to throw in the discussion is that it's incredibly hard and we've tried for many years, to actually assess the impacts of institutions on economic performance. It's not, and it's the holy grail for us. So we, we've been trying with countries and so on, and it's not like um, only the result of a simple re regression of institutions against economic growth. There's, there are many issues related to, to that and to assessing uh, the economic impacts of institutions that have to do with timing issues, endogeneity, attribution issues. What we've been doing with our countries actually is to try and define um, a broad framework of measuring regulatory performance to help them understand the inputs and the outputs and, and the outcomes. And what we've been doing for years as well is to uh, collect information on the quality of their institutions around laws and regulations 
uh, including uh, specific uh, composite indicators around uh, some of the issues that were raised in, in the presentation and by Scott as well, uh, stakeholder engagement um, that fits directly into trust or regulatory impact assessment that fits directly into whether policy making is informed by evidence or just uh, the result of a political uh, decision, uh, exposed evaluation as well. And uh, what we do is every three years we have a regulatory policy outlook. We published um, just in March a specific report for the uh, EU 28 reflecting on these indicators. And um, those are indicators that we collect every three years coming from thousands of questions, qualitative information that we clean uh, and that we, we analyze. And what I thought I would do actually is to show you, but we're not going to go into the details, obviously, um, of the methodology or the, the, the indicators themselves, because it would take a lot, a lot of time. But just a couple of um, key takeaways from those indicators and relating them back to what um, we were just uh, shown earlier in terms of resilience and uh, how did you call that the, the map, I mean the performance, the grading of the different countries between red and, and, and green. Um, what, what you see, and I'm showing stakeholder engagement for primary laws, we have for secondary, we have regulatory impact assessment, exposed evaluation, but just a couple of things. What you see here is that, broadly speaking, the EU does better than most of these, its members on these performance um, composite indicators, regulatory impact assessment. So the EU is doing very well. What you see as well, and I can show you any of these graphs actually, is the wide variety across EU members on these different composite indicators. Um, there is I mean, the EU constituency is not homogeneous when it comes to these better regulation institutions, and the EU institutions are doing particularly uh, well. If you look at the correspondence with the, the, the table that you showed us, um, there are some correlations that are interesting to note, uh, in particular um, the UK or somewhat some other EU countries like Germany and the Netherlands, which have established um, some strong, better regulation institutions and agenda at home also feature as of all very green on your, on, on your graph. Um, some of the southern countries from South Europe or Central Europe um, are also lagging behind the better regulation agenda and you can see it on this graph. However, We've seen recently strong developments in Italy, in Portugal, in Croatia, in Estonia, that will most probably take um, a long time or some time to actually show ec the economic impacts that, that you could expect from those uh, improvements. And I think what is striking when you look at our indicators, and it's probably the same for you, is that you don't, except probably for the UK, you don't see uh, one country that has very strong performance or very weak performance across all of the indicators. So it's like not only heterogeneous across EU members, but it's heterogeneous within one country where um, the progress and the reforms have been done um, in, in, in recent years and in the past as well. And given that our indicators uh, max is four, you can see that there's a 
big room for improvement for all of the EU countries on these specific disciplines of the better regulation. So I highlighted the fact that it's very difficult to assess the impacts of these specific institutions on economic performance. We haven't managed to do so, so far. Um, but it doesn't mean that we're not convinced. Did I lose the mic? No? Okay. Um, but it doesn't mean that we're not convinced of the importance of these institutions, uh, obviously, and they are very strong theoretical and even anecdotal evidence that of the importance of transparency, evidence-based policy to support good economic outcomes and obviously good redistributional outcomes as well. Just to give you a couple of examples of that, while meaningful stakeholder engagement in the development of regulation is obviously expected to lead to higher compliance, better acceptance of regulations, in particular when stakeholders feel that their views have been taken into account, that they are listened to, and that they receive uh, feedback. And a colleague of mine, as Christiana, <coughs> has actually um, developed a paper on that with Professor Lind that shows the good um, virtuous circle of stakeholder engagement uh, and trust and uh, the resilience or solidity of institutions that can arise uh, from, from that. And conversely, there's a lot of, we know, a lot of scientific studies showing that uh, people, when they feel excluded, they, they, not, they feel bad about it, and it's actually akin to physical pain. So we, we know, obviously, from um, those evidence that, that they matter. And it's the same for impact assessment. When you think about impact assessment, um, this is really providing uh, policymakers with crucial information to base their decision making and to achieve their policy goals. It is obviously challenging to develop a correct policy responses that maximize social societal well-being. And it's the role of these regulatory impact assessments to help policymakers examine the impacts of their alternative options for, for action. They clarify uh, the impacts, they reduce the likelihood that policies favor specific overall general interests. We know the theory all of all of that. And they help identify the trade-off that exists. So potentially to identify how to achieve redistributional outcomes uh, and what could be the cost of that. But what we know as well is that from those, the use of this discipline is that the beneficial impacts may not materialize from adopting these different uh, disciplines. Uh, in particular, when you think about stakeholder engagement, how it is used in most uh, countries, it comes often very late in the policy-making process. And if it comes after a decision has been taken, it doesn't really influence the decision-making uh, process. And that's not going to help inform the, the decision-making process. Another is the same for the regulatory impact assessment. If it's just a justification to justify a political choice, it's not going to bring the kind of evidence that can help you uh, assess the trade-off and look at the redistributional, the redistributional impacts of your policy action. And from the work we've done with the EU28, what we've seen as well in the particular EU context is some kind of disconnect uh, between the better regulation institutions at the EU level and at member country level. And to give you an example of that, 
we realized that uh, by asking questions to the countries that the members involve their stakeholders or carry out impact assessment when at the level of the transposition of EU directives. So it is much too late to influence the, the EU decision-making process because what would be needed is that the stakeholders are involved or the impact assessment is carried out when the countries are developing their position on the EU legislation, when, not when it's already adopted and it, you are at the transposition level. So we can see some of these you know, timing issues with the use of those institutions that may explain that they don't have the impacts that you would expect uh, from them. And finally, the last point I wanted to make is, um, in particular related to impact assessment, so theoretically, they can help you understand the redistributional effects of your policy decision. But, and there's a lot of guidelines that countries develop to help their regulators do that. But when you look at what happens in practice, it is very rare that uh, countries, not only in the EU, but OECD generally speaking, use that opportunity. And redistributional impacts remain the last impacts that uh, countries assess. They focus mostly on the cost to business, but not really the redistributional impacts. Well, I could go on forever on that. I love that topic, but I will stop here and I welcome the discussion. Uh, that was great. Uh, yet again, another plethora of, uh, of things to look at when we're talking about the level of institutions. Um, thank you very much. Please join us here. Um, perhaps before we open up the floor, we can give uh, maybe five minutes to the presenters of the report for quick reactions on, on any of the things you've heard from the discussants, if, if you wish. That would be uh, any, anything in particular? Okay, uh, then, uh, then why don't I kickstart the discussion, if I may? Um, so there's, uh, there's many things one could comment on. Uh, let, let me uh, pick on two. Uh, um, the first one is uh, this issue of uh, the country versus regions. Rina, you, you brought it up. I mean, th this issue that we observe, certainly in Europe, that we find great convergence between countries, but divergence between regions. That, of course, is, uh, is, is a topic very widely discussed in Europe, and it's, it's, you know, it's linked also to things like Brexit outcomes, voting patterns, and, and these types of things. But one of the things that perhaps you could discuss a little bit more is where do you think the trade-offs are here? Could it be that one happens against the other? Is there a trade-off between the two or is it a process that actually is independent and, and, and could be stopped in that? Uh, because it is a very important issue here and we, we produce our own heat maps here at Bruegel and we find very similar issues mm. when it comes to that but we don't have much of a sort of a, admittedly a rather difficult issue so you know you're, you're, if you could shed any light on that that would be very welcome. And then the second point I want to talk about simply because I think it's crucial for everything from economic outcomes all the way to completing the EU architecture is this issue of trust um, and you could take you could dissect the issue of trust at you know, at many different, in many different ways across different dimensions. Um, and, and, and I think it's important also to appreciate that it, trust is a complicated issue. It's not just, you know, just what you describe. It's a lot more things. You could think of different things happening to trust. So if you think about the digitally enabling trust, think about the digital economy and think about platform economy, how easy the digital transformation has allowed us to put trust on issues that previously we haven't, we wouldn't be doing. Think of Airbnb, Airbnb. Think of you know Uber. These types of things wouldn't have been allowed. And how quickly we entrust certain services on the one hand, and yet we don't trust banks, we don't trust political establishments. So the direction of trust and the direction of travel of trust 
uh, when it comes to some of the institutional aspects that you described, is going the other way. Um, so there is a digitally enabled trust that is going one way and the institutional one is going the other way and, and what's going on here? What is, what, what is the issue? So I mean I think that the issue of trust isn't an easy one. I think I certainly agree with what you said that trust is a key factor in trying promoting it's reinforcing and self-reinforcing in the process that you've described but is not one-dimensional and is not one-directional. Um, so, uh, I mean, uh, perhaps you have some comments on this and then we can open up for, for discussion from, from members of the, uh, of the audience or I could take questions at the same time and then come back to the panel. May Sorry, yeah. I have a question that picks up with your question. Yes. Can, uh, Hello. Yeah. I'm Ruth Passman from the European Commission. Um, Okay, my question is linked to your question on region and, uh, and country. The first point is that, of course, all the indicators that you showed and plugged in and to give the heat map are all at country level, so they don't really fundamentally address the initial problem that was asked. So I don't know how, uh, how this interacts. And indeed, the question is, how does it fit with... Um, um, how does the institutional, possible institutional change... I mean, it's the institution which drives divergence between regions in the same countries, or is it, should we look at different institutions at regional level to address the issue, basically? So in that sense, that's uh, the point. Um, the second point I wanted to make concerns labor, I work on uh, employment social affairs, uh, the issue of labor mobility, which uh, admittedly for the optimal currency year area, 4% four, four is very small, etc. But um, from, another, from the other point of view, labor mobility is emerging as one of the major problems in Europe, in the sense, because, uh, you know, countries which are losing citizens see it as a major problem. The other people, the countries which are receiving citizens see it also as a major problem. So, you know, the complete labor mobility of the US is, is not what Europeans want, eh? neither side, nobody wants this. So how are we resolving this problem? Thank you very much, an important question. Any other questions we could collect? The lady on the back. Um, can we have the mic, please? <laughs> They're gonna bring a mic, actually, sir. Um, I'm a professor in Aix-Marseille. Um, concerning the institutional change, you mainly mentioned uh, EU framework and uh, needs to move forward. What about the transformation of the institution, the crisis of institution like social security, hospital, legal system? Uh, you want more, more rule, more general European legal system, but there are already too many rules, so too many regulations. And I think uh, it may be necessary also to not only mention regulatory policy change and resilience, but also, uh, as you mentioned, the trust is moving towards different actors and uh, institutions are in crisis because these tech companies uh, totally change the power game between traditional and new actors. Thank you very much. Uh, one more question and then... Niklas from Hi, Bruegel. This is on. Hi, Niklas from Bruegel. So my question is basically related for, to, to this kind of policy. Uh, so we live in the age of Donald Trump and of, of Brexit, and the country that sticks out as having the best impact assessment is UK, the country where we have Brexit and where people say on the TV, these people with, with these acronyms, they tell us what to do and that's wrong. So I wonder if we as experts that write this report focus too much on policy 
and kind of forget about politics. So this kind of how can we actually implement the reforms that we need? An important question. Thank you, Nicholas. Perhaps we can come back to the panel and then we will have a second round. Anyone who would wish to share some thoughts on the three questions asked? Yeah, let me um, here, here. say one thing about trust in institutions. Well, we so need the microphone, actually. Sorry, the microphone was back there, I think. Can we have it back? Uh, he's wired up. Are you wired up? Okay, sorry. Yeah, I'm wired up. So uh, one of my, I remember my, one of my first meetings um, with our team and some of our the countries that we work with a lot in Eastern Europe, I remember that uh, several of the representatives of the countries, including the World Bank representatives who were working there, they would tell the following story. They would say, oh, we've made lots of progress. We have really the European acquis, we have really passed an enormous amount of laws and regulations. I thought, wow, that's cool. And then they said, but now there's a problem, the implementation. And I was literally stunned because I thought, how could you implement laws that you don't implement? I mean, what more fundamental critique could you give on the rule of law than this? So there is this drive towards passing laws without them then being implemented. And that, of course, undermines trust in a very major way. So I think it's also, when we talk about reforms in the European Union, let's make sure <laughs> That, that, that the existing body of regulation is actually implemented because without it, the trust um, is just not, it's just not there. Thank you. Marina, any thoughts? Sure, so, um, there we go. Um, I was lucky enough to be asked the question that you, in fact, gave me the answer to uh, <laughs> at the same time. It was very helpful. Um, so your, your, your point on... Um, if essentially on uh, states not becoming self-perpetuating and there not being a, a cycle of reinforcement, I think is, is, is where we, we, we would stand from the perspective of um, convergence at the country level versus the regional level. So, of course, it's an incredible asset to have capital regions and secondary cities that are uh, agglomeration economies that are successful. And that's not something that, uh, that we, would ever, we would ever say uh, is, um, is detracting from a country's success. But what that agglomeration means and what those secondary cities mean are that you often end up, you can end up in situations where you have such strong um, pull, if you want, and such strong um, growth momentum coming from particular areas with others that effectively are increasingly left behind, and not just from a growth perspective, but also from an opportunities perspective. So we, we're, we're going to release in a few weeks um, a sub-national analysis of human capital in Romania. And it's really very striking when you look at that map and you look at the GDP rates. And in fact, when you look at the DG Regio um, reports on, uh, on social indicators across, uh, across countries, you see very quickly that there are some uh, parts of, this is in this context, Romania, which simply are not growing um, at the same speed. But when you look at the opportunities afforded to the children in those locations, when you look at the business environment, you see that those opportunities, both for people and firms, it creates this reinforcing cycle. Um, and so when one considers this regional divergence and lagging regions, it's, it's not so much from the perspective of agglomerations that are this powerhouse of convergence and growth at the 
country level, but it's about the, it's the question of, well, how do we use our, our policy instruments to support the lagging regions to, re, to, to support the opportunities for development? So, but this also links, I think, to this point on migration. It's, it's not just the cross uh, the cross EU country migration we need to be looking very deeply at. It's the depopulation of some of these lagging regions. And it becomes, again, a reinforcing cycle where you speak to businesses and they say, well, the skilled labor, the younger labor, the labor force that we expect to be there, um, that would be the comparative advantage of this region, they're actually, they've moved. Um, and some Brain of them, drain, mean, yeah. precisely. Well, it, it, it can be both brain and brawn. So you see actually some positive indicators in Romania where you see the... Um, the the out of school uh, the out of school leaving rates and that's not quite the technical term but it's it's at a lower level it's one of the lowest levels it's been in in I think uh, five or six years and the reason is not because um, those uh, people are remaining within Romania they're actually it's a broad drain that people are leaving school and working elsewhere because they recognise that their return to their labour is greater at that moment their perceived return to labour is greater than the remaining within education so it's both a brain drain and in some parts of the country it can also be people moving early on not completing their education and moving to more dynamic labour markets yep. so from this perspective of um, the national convergence, obviously, we're, it, it's an exciting uh, trend that you see. And, and we didn't just look at out, out, um, GDP per capita. We looked at a range of social indicators to the extent we might have had a 200-page report. So we had to scale it back. But you see on female labor force participation, on so many positive trends, you see this convergence happening. Mm -hmm. But it's the, it's the divergence and the opportunities that, they, that they're signaling. Yes. Can I make a pitch on... Uh on more research on lagging regions, because um, we did a report on the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, and fortunately, uh, after negotiations, we got access to, um, to the key data that we could use, to sort of put a big panel data set together and say, okay, if you put the, the, various, uh, the various pillars of the CAP and the various programs that are under, if you, if you can trace those to, to various sub-national regions, then over time you should see some effect, no? It's not a randomized controlled trial, but certainly after, you know, 20, 25 years of putting, investing through certain programs in certain areas, you should see some result. And so our, we could base our analysis on that. We then thought, let's do this for lagging regions too, for the structural funds, the other big chunk of the... Those data aren't there. You have data on about the big funds under the structural funds, but within those funds are various programs that can really be policy relevant. So if this program works, or smart specialization in this form works, or you know, roads work, but these are now lumped in big funds. And we cannot get, and we've tried for a year, we cannot get those basic data, yeah, so that we can link economic growth, jobs, poverty to these major programs. Yeah? And it's really, I think, uh, with, the, with the cap, that was one big step, I felt. But for the other part of the, the big chunk of the budget, we, we, so what you see, the papers are projections, models, you know, uh, but they're not based on that sort of empirical analysis because we do not have the data. Okay. Any comments, Celine? Uh, sure. Question on politics and uh, yeah. and, and and the Brexit. Um, 
On, on, on that, obviously, I mean, there are two answers. There was no impact assessment done before the mm -hmm. Brexit. It was a referendum. But having said that, what we always say, and I think that's the only way the better regulation agenda works, is it's in support of political decisions. It does not replace the political decision in any case. And when we talk about institutions, we're talking about continuity, continuous arrangements, right? We're not talking about the political upheavals that can happen around these institutions. Um, so what we're working on is really these continuous, you know, disciplines that can help the decision-making at the service of the politicians. Very good, yeah. Scott, did you? So, uh, yeah, well, I guess a bunch of things. I, I, I also thought that the question about politics versus regulation was key. Uh, the way I look at it is, I think, very much in line with what Celine was saying. Uh, I, I like to make a distinction between um, the, uh, the, the political institutions. Essentially, when, when we talk about laws that implement regulatory policy, uh, that means generally that there's first been a political decision as to what authority to delegate down to the regulatory level. Uh, the people that make those political decisions have political accountability. Regulation is only possible once you've sort of created an ambit you know, sort of a framework within which the regulator can operate, ideally on a, in a dispassionate way to implement the policies that have been decided at the political level. So when the politics break down, bad things happen. And, you know, to me that's sort of the, sh the short answer for, uh, for Brexit. The politics there are very broken down, as in my native country, which is the United States, where they're also totally dysfunctional. Um, let's see, on the, on, on the question about trust, um, actually for both digital and non-digital services, I think that to some extent the answers are, are largely the same. Uh, I think that trust comes from a number of factors like predictability, transparency, and accountability. And <coughs> I think the, the digital companies that have been most successful have somehow been able to convince the public that they're able to do that. Some of them struggle from time to time with that, as we've seen. But I think the, the more successful ones have done that. And I think to some extent, really much the same holds for, uh, for government institutions as well. <clears throat> and part of the reason that both Celine and I focus on these better regulation issues is that it's a way to increase the transparency and the openness of the process. Um, as far as too many rules and regulations, <clears throat> you're right. Uh, as it happens, uh, we've done some work on this. Uh, uh, I've, uh, I've been working with uh, Katerina and uh, my colleague Katerina is actually working on a blog that will talk about this in a little more depth. Um, the, uh, we, we actually looked, uh, given that the Juncker Commission uh, had talked about regulatory simplification, about being bigger on the big things and smaller on the small ones, uh, we were curious as to whether more laws versus less had been enacted in the current term. Uh, and uh, it turns out, in terms of the sheer number of instruments enacted, uh, if you sort of normalize things by how many years into the cycle, uh, the five-year cycle, uh, you can make a pretty credible argument that, uh, that the Juncker Commission did enact fewer laws. You also see a, a, a good college try to, to uh, repeal laws and regulations that were no longer used. Uh, on the other hand, if you do a more detailed assessment of the length of the instruments, which is certainly a, a measure of their complexity, trying to do a real, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm partly a computer scientist, so you know, I would really like to do a, a real algorithmic assessment of all the provisions, but that's impra totally impractical. If you look at the length, though, there's a big increase in the length. Uh, how big an increase you could debate, how to actually count the appendices and annexes in the, in the various legislative instruments. But overall, 
uh, I think you have to say that it's increasing in complexity. And an open question to which I would say we don't have an answer today is, is this just inherent state of being? Is it that having complicated rules, they need better elaboration over time to make them more correctly express what they're trying to do? Uh, or are there ways that could actually be used to genuinely reduce the complexity, uh, not only in terms of number of instruments, but also in terms of the provisions within them? But surely it also adds to this issue of trust. Complexity, non-transparency may be efficient in terms of addressing all details that are need to be addressed, but it might actually be uh, you know, culpable of not achieving or at least not helping build trust and maintain trust. Yeah, sure. Maybe just an, a note on that, because um, the trust of citizens and companies into um, their regulatory institutions is not only a function of deregulation on, or, or the numerical number of laws and regulations, because there is a demand from citizens to be protected in the face of these new technologies as well. So it's not only an issue to, of saying we'll remove all, all the regulations and people will be... Uh, feeling better about their institutions, so it's more complex than simply that. It's about, you know, having better laws and sometimes the, the frictions and the burdens that citizens and businesses feel in front of the law have to do with what we discussed earlier, which is the enforcement processes, the administrative burden around these uh, regulatory tools, not necessarily, you know, the, the, out, the intent of the law and, and, and regulations. And there's a lot that countries can do on that. One of the graph that I, I left at the end was uh, to show that how little countries do exposed evaluation of their laws and regulations, which is the typical tool to understand whether the laws and regulations achieve their objectives. If you don't even look at whether you've achieved your objective through that specific policy tools or the mix of policy instruments that you, you may be using, it's very difficult to adapt your, your, your policy action. and. As every government, I mean, they, they want to show that they act, but it's very hard to have a critical look at whether you've achieved what you said you would achieve. Mm -hmm. From a politics perspective, nobody wants to do that. There's been an initiative, um, I was in the hearing, uh, <coughs> first it was the initiative of DG Connect, and then it has been chaired by the committees, uh, social and economic committees, and the, the scope of the agenda was self-regulation, co-regulation, co-regulation with whom, the traditional uh, professional bodies or um, representative of uh, different sectors were disappearing because of these tech companies. And so it's not only, I agree, too many regulations, but it's the uh, the vacuum of uh, how to adapt it or transform them with the, the new digital uh, market and agenda. And uh, self-regulation has been disbanded, I thought, but uh, you know it's a political decision. Well, actually, uh, te technology may, may pose challenges, but it also offers solutions. Uh, one movement that's gaining force, and OECD's Club of Regulators is big in this, uh, uh, is sometimes referred to as tech regs. It's the idea that uh, it's increasingly possible today to use technology, including things like artificial intelligence and big data and machine learning, to create uh, frameworks that are largely self-implementing, self-enforcing. I mean, clearly it takes a lot of thought on how to do that, but um, but there's some real, real promise there, and so... Uh, I, I think there are things that can be done. I, I will say it's fairly common in our business, especially in areas like telecommunications, which is an area where I've done a lot of work, 
that market players want to make the argument that too many regulations leads to reduced investment, leads to this and that bad thing. Uh, I can't tell you how many different regressions I've seen that try to say, is a country regulating or not, and therefore there's less network build-out. And I think it's total rubbish. Um, the, the volume of regulation is probably not in and of itself decisive. The nature of the regulation surely plays a large role. We have time for one more question, the gentleman at the back here. Oh, two questions, two quick questions. Hi, Andrew Winter um, from the European Commission. Thanks to the panel there today for their presentations. They were all very informative and useful. It's to come back to Celine's point and then specifically to Scott. My question is to Scott, if you could elaborate slightly more on one of the points in your slide, it was issues that need to be done and you had highlighted ex-post evaluations being used to their full potential. Could you explain what you mean by that? Thank you. Yeah, and then question here. Inge Bernertz, European Commission uh, as well. Um, I'm very much sharing the analysis on the importance of the enforcement of rules which are put in place. But I was wondering whether from your perspective this is something which lends itself only to ex post assessment or whether also in the impact assessment in the ex-ante impact assessment, we could and should be giving more attention to enforceability of rules. Okay, okay perhaps we come back to the panel for some final thoughts. Yeah, I just want to say that was uh, my colleague's point there, that we shouldn't just um, have stakeholder consultation after <laughs> the law has been passed or the regulation has been passed. It should be upfront. And that was also the story of the stakeholder consultation boost resilience. Let's together look at the problem and together come up with a solution. And that's a highly political process, uh, by the way. Yeah. Scott, there was one question. So uh, there, there were actually a, a couple there. Uh, well, in, in fact, obviously, I, I think impact assessment needs to be much more data-driven. Um, and actually, uh, in work I've done for the Parliament, I've strongly encouraged them to think about this notion of automated enforcement at the time when the laws are being crafted. Sure. Um, it, it seems to me that there's a real opportunity there, and, and the technology is there today to do probably more of that than we're doing. I don't think it'll work for everything, but I think we could be doing more than we have. On, on, the, uh, on the evaluation side, this is something Katarina and I also looked at a bit. Our, our general impression has been that an awful lot of the ex-post work focuses, I mean, normally uh, you've got four or five different criteria that should be looked at. Uh, effectiveness, efficiency, coherence, and all the rest. European added value, which is kind of a somewhat soft criterion. Um, our, our impression has been that there's much more attention paid to efficiency than there is to effectiveness. Uh, in other words, much more to how well the measures are achieving what they're, uh, uh, what they're supposed to with minimum resources than are they actually solving the problem. Um, and um, I, I'd make that as... Can you take the mic, please? Because we are live streaming. Um, exactly. I was saying that uh, in our analysis, I mean, we see initiatives like the refit, and we see analysis of cost and of uh, legislative initiatives and how much they costed, essentially. But we don't see so much uh, analysis on their effectiveness. So were the ultimate goals that they set, were these uh, reached or not? Um, also because sometimes even the monitoring tools for a specific proposal are not 
necessarily very well defined beforehand, so that also complicates the exercise of doing an ex-post evaluation. And then finally, well, sometimes when you do do an impact assessment that builds on previous legislation, sometimes there you do take the initiative to do um, an ex-post, but if you are not in this situation, it might go undone very often. So that was our perception. Thank you, Katarina. Uh, Celine, you also yeah. wanted to react, yeah? You yeah, want? if I may rebound on that, because we've looked at that for the 28 uh, EU countries, and you can see that ex-post evaluation is, is done much less than uh, ex-ante impact assessment. Mm -hmm. So we call, we call it the lost child of regulatory policy, better regulation. When it's done, very often what countries look at is better burden reduction, rather than whether the laws and regulations have achieved their objective in the first place. So there's a big methodological issue with exposed evaluation. And when it comes to the uh, um, kind of anticipating on the implementation needs in the uh, ex-ante impact assessment, that again, we ideally, it should be part of it in two ways. Uh, impact assessment should actually reduce the occurrence of bad laws and regulations. So typically regulations that are developed just to show that you are taking action, but not with in mind the fact that they should be implemented because it happens in a lot of countries. That should be the first thing. And the second thing, it should integrate some understanding of what it takes to implement the regulation, including the cost for those that have to implement the regulation. And that is, uh, not done systematically. But there's also a big, in our view, there are issues that countries look less at, which are directly how they organize their inspections, their enforcement procedures, and so on, to uh, reduce the cost uh, for, for the citizens and, and the businesses. And again, here, I mean, the new technologies, digital digitalization and so on can help for reporting, for uh, complying, and, and so on. And there's still a big potential to be had with those as well. If I could just add something on, on this question. Um, there is, for example, an impact assessment activity within the European Parliament. Um, it's very, very thin staffing, but I think a good little group. Um, but of course, what they do, uh, other than cases where they've been specifically asked to study something, they're looking at the impact assessments as they come in. They aren't looking at ex post at all. Uh, and there's a very simple reason for that. You know, what they're looking at is the things that are about to go to the parliament for enactment. And the, uh, since the ex post doesn't trigger anything necessarily by itself in the parliament, they're not asked to do anything, they're not staffed to do anything, they don't do it. And I think probably somewhat uh, analogous considerations may very well apply to the commission as well. You have to provide an impact assessment when you submit a legislative proposal. You don't always do it, but most of the time you do. I mean, actually, in, again, <coughs> in a large number of cases for the... Uh, for the parliament, and in fact, in, in all of the cases I looked at, there had been an impact assessment. Um, but uh, as far as ex post evaluations, uh, I, I don't really see the, uh, I don't see the control mechanisms as being nearly as strong. Okay, very good. Perhaps I give the final floor to the final word to our guests today. Any final thoughts with which we can close the session? I, I would... Um I would just, uh, I'll use this to make a pitch, um, which is that between an uh, impact assessment and an ex-post assessment that comes sometime after, uh, the unpredictability of responses from firms and households, all actors, will play such an important role of enforcement and on implementation. And those 
small, you could t think of small assessments or it could be um, continuous evaluation, which will really play the most influential role of thinking of how you went from your initial view of how this thing would be implemented to the ex post actual realization. And those, that process of continuous evaluation, of improving and of nuancing in implementation is uh, vital for efficient and effective uh, implementation. So that's, a, that's more of a pitch than a, than a, than a reflection. I'll leave it to Rocky to reflect. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, just thank you very much for, for having us. Absolutely. I mean, it is a bit new to us to be part of the Brussels bubble. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> because we're happy to be part of it. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope that we can work together. And, and yeah, drill down deeper in some of these things where I do think uh, we need more data. Yeah. It sounds always a bit trite, but in this case, it's true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that we have, may have many more of these events. Where we oh, well, thank you for coming, and thank you for nudging us to do better on such an important file. I mean, we all agree that this is an incredibly important file, and the more people nudge, the better, hopefully, the outcome uh, will be. But in the meantime, thank you again for taking the time. Fascinating report, and we'll, we will continue this conversation. Please thank me in, in, in all our guests, including Celine. Thank you. <laughs> and Scott.